It is just about nine o'clock, which means it's time for our Friday morning uh, devotion. And of course, the last few weeks we haven't really been doing so much, um, so much of it as a devotion, uh, which usually looks at a passage of scripture and seeks to you know apply it to our lives for the day and that sort of thing. But we've been looking at, well, really um, common objections that are brought up. Uh, to faith in general that are brought up just just I think in the world we're living in a very uh, skeptical time here in the West there's no no way around that we're um, we're skeptical of institutions we're skeptical of uh, basically just about anything and I think there's a lot of reasons for that um, you know part of it is the advent of the internet exposing people to so many sources of information whether true or false I don't know that um, it matters for this particular point. It just seems to be that we're bombarded with information in a way that we never have been in human history. And that has led to all sorts of questions about what we can trust, what we can believe. Uh, and, and, and so it, it is a time where we're asking all sorts of, all sorts of probing questions. Now, uh, the last couple of weeks, the first week we talked about, uh, we dealt with the question of whether faith is inherently irrational and I pointed out of course that no it's not and I didn't just say that because I'm a pastor and obviously I kind of have to stand up for that team but from a philosophical perspective we know that faith in and of itself is not irrational but rather it's what faith places its uh, uh, what, what the object of the faith is that determines whether it's rational or not then the next week we talked about uh, whether uh, miracles were were it was irrational to believe in miracles or whether it was uh, at least reasonable to believe in the possibility of the miraculous. And I won't rehash all the arguments there, but of, of course, by the end of it, I showed that, uh, or at least I hope to show that uh, one didn't have to toss away their brain in order to accept at least the very possibility of miracles. And today we're going to be looking at the very question of history uh, because history has just the discipline of history has come under all sorts of scrutiny uh, it, fairly recently because, uh, of course, there there's some good reason to question what we've been taught as history. If you're from my generation, I'm uh, proudly Generation X, uh, then you probably still remember being taught certain myths about uh, George Washington. For example, the myth about George Washington and the cherry tree uh, supposedly in his sixth birthday, you know, he got a hatchet and uh, he went outside and it, if he didn't chop down his father's cherry tree, he did some damage to the cherry tree. And so his father comes to him to ask him if he has done this. And George Washington says, I cannot tell a lie. And his father embraces him, realizing that his son's honesty is far more valuable than a thousand trees. So the myth goes, well, well, we know that's a myth. We know that it's not true. And, um, and we know that because we've been able to uh, do some strong investigation over the years as to what is true from false about George Washington. And in fact, there happens to be a lot of myths about George Washington. Uh, there happens to be a lot of things that people take for granted about him that are in fact not true. And so as more research is done, the more we find out that some things that we have believed uh, about history uh, are not true, that causes us to question whether we can believe anything about history. Well, nowhere is that more the case than when it comes to matters of, um, of religious faith, and especially when it comes to the Christian faith, because the Christian faith anchors its whole argument in historical reliability. 
the claims of the gospel writers, and for that matter, the Apostle Paul and the whole New Testament, and I would argue the Old Testament, uh, is that it's actually something that happened in space and time, and that these are accurate records of what has taken place. Well, of course, there's been all sorts of questions about that, and uh, you know, the Bible has been uh, scrutinized and attacked from every which angle that uh, one can possibly find to try and discount its credibility. And so over the years, um, critical scholars, and I'm, what I mean by that is scholars that are not, they would not call themselves believers, and yet they do want to figure out what's true from false, at least in the accounts that we have in the Bible, have developed a number of criteria to determine the historical reliability of various claims in the Bible, and especially when it comes to the Gospels. And so I want to talk about that today. I want to talk about what uh, those, those criteria are for determining what's true from false, or if there is something that can be believed. I'm not necessarily going to be making an argument for the reliability of the Bible itself. But you will see I'm definitely going to be giving examples from the Bible itself to explain the principles behind the various criteria that are mentioned. So, uh, so here's, there's five criteria that scholars have come up with to try and determine whether something is historically authentic in the Bible or not. Uh, first criteria is uh, what is known as early multiple attestation. What does that mean? I know that sounds uh, fancy, but really all it means is, is what's being reported as true, reported by multiple and or independent sources close to the time and space when the events actually are reported to have taken place? That's the first question that they ask. Is there any reason to believe that what this gospel writer is saying or for that matter, what the other gospel writer is saying, is close to the events reported and that it seems to be in line with uh, what other people are saying, even if a little different at, at times. Well, when it comes to the gospel writers, certainly that is the case. There's an awful lot of similarity. We know that uh, the earliest gospel is Mark, well, we don't know that for sure, but that's the assumption amongst a good number of scholars based on their research. And that probably was penned in the 60s, um, Luke and Matthew, maybe the 70s. Uh, and then John, uh, depending on who you read, either comes in the 90s or it could have been even earlier, um, much earlier. Uh, we're not quite sure, but we do know that these were all written within the first century, within a few decades of when the events of Jesus's life took place. Now you say, well, man, that seems like a long time. That, that, I mean, that's three, four decades removed. But you have to remember that when it comes to ancient historical events, that is actually vastly closer than many other historical events that we take as fact or we believe are true. I mean, it, it, vastly closer. It's not even comparable. I mean, when we think about the Gallic Wars, or we think about what Homer uh, writes about, those, those things that we accept are true are based on far less fragments uh, of their writings and are written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after the purported events took place. Not so with the Gospels, in fact, or, or for that matter, with uh, the writings of the Apostle Paul. The, probably the earliest writing about some of the historical events of Jesus's life 
uh, that we have is written in first Corinthians chapter 15, which is maybe written about 15 to 20 years after the events of Jesus's life. That is extremely early for a historical document or for a historical claim. And the reality is Paul, even in that text, challenges the readers to basically, basically says there's a, hundreds of people that saw what we are claiming to be true, that Jesus rose and that they saw him in the body. And if you don't believe me, you can go and ask them. That's the implicit assumption behind what he's writing. Go and ask him. So it, that's a very, very risky thing to do if this is all just um, a made up myth. Uh, this is something that uh, makes it well, certainly hard to to just discount the story entirely. There just seems to be too much multiple attestation uh, around the events as they took place. Secondly, uh, the second criterion is dissimilarity. And that is um, that basically what this criteria states is that the historicity of something is more probable if that something is dissimilar uh, to the prior beliefs of those claiming its occurrence. Uh, and that would certainly fit with what the Gospels report. We know that in the Greco-Roman world, there really was no idea of somebody rising in the body because in the Greco-Roman world, the flesh was seen as basically inherently evil because matter was inherently evil. And so the idea of somebody rising from the dead in the body would have been uh, condemned. It would have been seen as ludicrous in the Greco-Roman world. And for that matter, on the Jewish side of things, the Jewish people had no belief that there would be a single person, uh, that the Messiah as a single person would be rising from the dead. They did have a concept of a general resurrection, some of them did, at the end of time, but they did not have a concept that the Messiah was going to rise by himself. This makes it so that it's, well, dissimilar. This is the criterion to determine whether it would be, uh, whether it has some historical reliability to it or not. There's also other examples of dissimilarity that you can find um, in the Bible. For example, um, the fact that they start meeting on Sunday, uh, the fact that they claim uh, that, um, uh, th that Jesus's teachings on the Sermon on the Mount, for example, are so different than uh, what other people had been saying. Uh, Peter's decision to allow Gentiles into the church, all of these things would have just been so contrary that there'd be no good reason to report these things unless there was some truth to them. The third criteria is the criteria of embarrassment. Now, what does that mean? Well, basically, they, the historian asks the question, um, it, similar to like the George Washington myths, is there stuff in this document that they wouldn't report unless it was true. In other words, that they wouldn't want to report because when you're reporting, you tend to want to, uh, especially if you're doing hagiography, making a hero out of somebody, you don't want to report their negative stuff. You don't want to report the bad stuff or the embarrassing things. Well, the fact is the gospels are full of things that would have been embarrassing uh, and there's really no other reason to report it unless it was actually true. I mean, what good would it have done Peter uh, as the leader of the early church, to have it reported that he denied Jesus three times on the night of Jesus's uh, arrest and trial. It would have certainly undermined Peter, if anything, uh, as having any claim to leadership of the church, unless it actually happened. 
Uh, we mentioned this before many times, but the fact that women are the first ones to discover the empty tomb in all of the gospel accounts um, would have been highly embarrassing for the early church. There's no way around that because, again, at that point, unfortunately, women's voices were just not trusted as reliable. It is true. That was the way, uh, that was the way it worked back then. Um, and then you have uh, the criterion of, of cultural and historical congruency. In other words, um, you're asking the question when you come to a document, is what's being reported here in line with what we know of the time? So, for example, if you were reading Luke's gospel and it all was taking place in Palestine in the first century and it all seemed to kind of be in line with what we know about Palestine in the first century and suddenly in the 10th chapter a jet fighter showed up and blasted the Jerusalem temple we would know <laughs> with fairly uh, accurate certainty that that was made up that doesn't fit with the time that these things were reported and so scholars ask questions like this and when I say scholars, again, I'm not talking about Christian scholars. I'm talking about scholars that would be prone to finding holes and poking holes in the Gospels. Um, and yet through their development of these criterion, uh, the last one, by the way, is um, you have also, last criterion is like uh, what's known as Aramaisms or Semitisms. You know, it depends on uh, who you're reading, depending on the language that they'll use. But basically what that means is, um, if Jesus is speaking in uh, what would be common sort of Aramaic language or Aramaic custom in certain parts of the Gospels, then we have very good reason to believe that it's true because that was, in fact, the language that was being spoken in and around Jerusalem at the time. So, so all that being said, those are the five criteria for uh, that, that historians use to try and determine whether something is true from false, whether something is accurate in the Gospels. And uh, that's the criterion that, that you could use as you look at the Gospels. Do they seem to have multiple witnesses, multiple attestations uh, to the events they claim to have happened? Do they have uh, historical congruence? That, does it fit with, with what we know of the time? Is there embarrassing details that people wouldn't want others to know unless they just couldn't hide it? And is there some degree of, of what we're calling dissimilarity? Is there something, is there some of the teachings in the book that, that wouldn't have gone along with uh, what everybody already believed to be true. If those things are happening, then at least we have good reason to believe that the events reported are probable, if, um, if anything. So again, I'm not making a full-throated um, apologetic or defense of the Gospels per se today. There's a lot, lot more that can be said about that, maybe in a future um, video. But I did want to at least give you a framework for how historians try and piece together what we can believe and what we can't, because it's not uh, legitimate. It's not possible to believe that all of history is simply written by the winners and therefore it's all discounted, which is a more and more common claim today. No, it's more nuanced than that. We have to find out, we have to sift through and try and determine what of the historical claims made throughout all of uh, our time as humanity can at least be seen as probable as compared to that which is seen as false. So that's the way that we judge these things. Hope that helps. Um, uh, next week, we're going to actually begin looking now that we've talked about some of these uh, foundational things. We'll be looking at um, some arguments for the existence of God. So we're moving from 
well, we've been dealing with philosophical issues, but we're going to be moving into some more, uh, certainly deeper philosophy next week because that is where we sort of need to start from as we look at the probability of whether God exists or, or not. So, all right, that's it. Happy Friday to you. Um, we will see you on Sunday.